Hello and welcome to Why Make, where we talk with makers from different disciplines about what inspires them to make. With your hosts, Rob Helmkamp and Eric Wolken. And welcome to our holiday episode of Why Make. Today we are having something extra special in store for you. It's a conversation with one of the groundbreaking artists of the modern studio furniture movement, Tommy Simpson. Tommy's work has a whimsical bent that belies a serious approach to making for someone who has created a universe of uniquely Tommy objects in every media you can think of. Tommy, along with Wendell Castle, cracked the furniture atom with their 1966 exhibition in New York called Fantasy Furniture, declaring furniture was no longer solely about form and function. This interview also marks a special moment for the Why Make crew, We've been asked by the Furniture Society to do a short documentary about Tommy's life and career. It'll be the first for us. We've never done a film before. Film, you say? What do you guys even know about film? You barely know how to do a podcast. And for that very reason, we've brought on board documentary filmmaker Nick Beery from Beery Media. He's a good old friend of Eric's, a new friend of mine, but he's going to help us take it from a podcast up to a film project. And we also need help from you, our listeners and fellow artists, to produce this film and to present another full year of Why Make interviews. Please become a Why Make patron. Your donation will go towards our equipment, travel, our Squadcast app fees, and other materials that bring Why Make projects to life. As always, we'll happily continue to donate our time adventurously painting pictures in words, sound, and film of the wonderful makers that occupy our field. Our goal is to raise a modest $3,000 for the 2022 season of Why Make. We really hope you'll contribute by donating at any level that works for you. The tiers begin at $5 a month, but you can also make a custom donation by going to the Make a Custom Pledge button found under the tier levels after you've registered on the Patreon website. Just go to patreon.com forward slash why make podcast. If you donate at the $20 a month level, your entire contribution will go towards producing the Tommy Simpson documentary. And yes, at this level, we're going to bring on the swag. And that includes a why make t-shirt, which can, you can see modeled by the why make crew on the website, a handcrafted wooden heart from the man himself, Tommy Simpson, and a credit in the film as a sustaining funder. And if you bring in a friend, fellow listener, or a maker to contribute, we'll be indebted to you for always. That's patreon.com forward slash why make podcast. And now on to our conversation with Tommy Simpson, a warm and open soul who has created more than 4,000 pieces and an amazing career of over 60 years. Speaking of your past, Tommy, as, as we roll into this, I wanted to welcome you to the uh, to the Why Make podcast. Yeah, welcome, with Tommy. our worldwide listenership of, of four, <laughs> oh, maybe good. maybe five. You know, it's it's hard yeah. to tell. Yes. You know, when I talked with you about four or five months ago, you sent me your wonderful little chapbook, uh, Mittens. Right. And I just wanted to start with the the very first quote, of the introduction of Mittens, because it just gave me such a a warm, wonderful feeling. Of, of your childhood and the, the origins of your, your creativity. I mean, this is you quoting, weird as it may seem, I want to reclaim and hold on to the times when my heart was a mitten, for then did I feel the comforting warmth from my dreaming, searching, and discovery. And that's just, I think as artists, we really try and hold on to that creative person we were as children. And, and we try and hold on to that for our career, that wonderment, that beauty of of what creating first was for us. 
And that's a, a great segue into the into the why make question, the the only prescribed question, which is what is your first memory of making something, Tommy? It's, it's a complicated answer because the first time I made something, I don't remember it, which was when I was about three years old, my mother reprimanded me and made, sat me down on a stool in the living room. Think about what I had do, just done. And she told me that 15 minutes later, she came back and I had taken the shoelaces out of my shoes and I was making something. So that was sort of an imprint of, I think, my existence. I was lucky. I grew up in a small little town on the Fox River of which, you know, you ate breakfast and then you came back for dinner and you, in a sense, made all kinds of things, you know, from snowmen to tree houses to um, raking leaves. You'd rake them in a form of a house or you'd go in the sandbox and make villages. And when I was in high school, I restored an antique car. I've built sailboats. So I had an opportunity because of the times. There was very little television. And if you wanted something, you had to go do it yourself. And there was also a myriad of friends who had the skills. There, I grew up in a, a farm community where if the farmer didn't know how to do it, he didn't eat. So you always ask a farmer, how do you do this? My woodworking training came from carpenters who showed me how to do things so that I always have, in a sense, delved in the world of just making things, sort of the adventure and the fun of using your own ideas and your own imagination and coming up with, you know, a a new hat or adjuncts to your bicycle or something of that nature. So it was more about just simplistically just doing things without any um, pressure of the, the marketing of world of art or, or, or crafts or things of that nature. The, I had done all sorts, you do posters for the VFW, you know, when they, once a year or something of all kinds of things of that nature. I didn't go to a museum till I was 19 years old because my family were all in medicine and I was sort of expected to go into medicine uh, because when I was graduated from high school, I was a, I worked in surgery in a local hospital as an orderly. Eventually, in my sophomore year in college, my freshman year at the University of Illinois, I deliberately flunked myself out and then was going to go, go around the world. And I ended up in Hawaii for six months working construction. And then I got guilty and I said I should go back to school. And when I went back to school, ultimately, I went to seven universities. For all different <laughs> he reasons. jumped around quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, when when they started repeating themselves, I left. You know, kind of thing. <laughs> the first thing to go back to where what did you make? The first thing I ever re- made was a woodcut of a print of an owl that I did in a uh, art class, a print printmaking class I took as an elective, just as, for fun. And that was the first time that I associated the activity of doing something called art. All the all the other things were just the fun or adventure of, you know, making a hut, a fort in the in the weed field or a tree house or as I said before. And, and and so that imprinting of youth is of just the adventure of discovery and things just seemed to permeate me whether I liked it or not. That was my imprint of what life was about. So I did that for another 60 years. 
When do you think the that formal word art entered your life? When did you really start to think about what you were doing for fun and as as play actually became art? Well, when I was a sophomore, I took this um, elective class in, in printmaking, and the teacher there, Keith Baker, um, was an artist, and and through the process of that one semester, that. He pointed out the fact that what I was doing and what I thought and everything was I was an artist. It never occurred to me it, it, until that moment. And so from there on, I went and took nothing but art courses. So I'd go to the, at the university to try to catch up at Northern Illinois University. I went to Elgin Community College at night and took art classes. So I was going to two un- institutions at a time. And then uh, I went. They, I got a grant from them, and I went to the University of London and studied uh, one summer, sort of their culture in terms of art and sculpt, and building and architecture and that sort of thing. And then I went to University of Iowa and studied printmaking. Did a lot of etching and thing. And then I ended up at Cranbrook Academy of Art in Michigan. I got an MFA in painting. And so that. A lot of the early furniture I did was because I liked doing it, and as well as I put a lot of painting emphasis on the objects I made. I painted a lot of them. I sort of bridged, you know, put the two together kind of thing. started making furniture there because they had an open wood shop. At that time in history, that if you wanted to use a wood shop, you had to be an industrial arts major in a lot of schools. But Cranbrook had an open wood shop where you could cut your finger off at your own expense, you know. And so I started making furniture there. I was kind of curious to, because I think one of the things that's characterized your career as a maker is you've you've been in many different mediums. You've been a painter, you've been a printmaker, you've worked in clay, you've worked in metal. Did they try and pigeonhole you into a medium in art school? Or have you always explored many different mediums at once? I've always explored that way, and um, no, they were, Zoltan Sepeshi was the president and my teacher, and I was there a year and a half, and um, the second year, I got a fellowship to teach drawing to the other people, the, the potters and the weavers and things, but uh, in the year and a half, he said not one thing about my painting. He'd come in and look at it and then leave, you know. Well, was that a, was that a good thing or was that a bad thing? Once he came in and I was in the painting studio in my little booth and I was carving um, on a little toy box I made. And I was, you know, bang, bang, bang a little bit with a mallet, you know. And he came in and said, uh, you're not supposed to do that in in here. This is the <laughs> paint, painting studio. So he turned around and, and um, I could hear his footsteps and so I started pounding again. And so I hear him come to the door and open it up and leave. So he didn't come back you know, to tell me what, you know. So he was, and a lot of the verbiage that we got, would, we would all, you know, there are five or six of us in the studio would go in the stairwell once a week and really talk about not painting or we'd talk about, careers or attitudes or um, how do you feel about this and what do you think about that it sort of gave you a, a bigger um, 
vocabulary about doing things. But I, I've always enjoyed just doing things. There are many artists historically that Miro did, you know, tapestries and sculpture and painting and and all kinds of things. And so many other artists have too. Picasso did a lot of ceramics, mm -hmm. you know, this kind of thing. And so they were all a matter of the adventure of, of discovery and finding and using your ideas and experience and some ideas work better in ceramics than they do in painting. Uh, so it, that was one nature of it and also after 60 years career you find out that you know one out of 20 people have an education in painting because because just because of our cultural thing and, it, and they're intimidated so they they you know won't even look at the stuff for example i'd make a painting and nobody would look at it and i take the same exact same image and make a rug <laughs> and everybody would stand there and look at the rug and talk about the rug because they were they didn't feel intimidated and in furniture hmm. um you know instead of one out of 20 15 out of 20 people will look at furniture because they live with it, they eat on it, and they sleep on it, and they have a vocabulary and feel comfortable talking about it. You right. Know, it's still design, it's still color, and still, you know, so on and so forth. So going back to those those beginning days making furniture, was the idea actually to build functional objects or just to get to, or build objects people would look at? What started the interest in furniture? I'm just curious. I think it's a little of both. Some of it is that I made things for myself. I had some kids that would make a toy box, you know, and I'd make a chair and, and, and do things, a bigger cupboard, because I needed, I made a, a cupboard with a table and a chair in it so that the kids could, could get in the cupboard and sit in the cupboard and close the door. Things that were fun, <laughs> that necessarily, you know, utilitarian. Sort of the idea that uh, beauty goes to your heart, but utility goes to your soul. I don't know if you ever heard that one. Functional is one of those, to me, amazingly vague words because you've sort of recontextualized it to mean instead of a cupboard being about storing things, it's actually a place to play games and have fun. It's, you know, what we all wanted to do as children, which was find a place to hide. Right. You're redefining functionality. <laughs> yeah. You've recontextualized something that is a common object into something that serves your own needs, which is uh, actually pretty cool. Well, I've always made stuff that I personally would like to have, as well as at the same time I'd make the commission work from dealing with people, because a lot of commission things, people, it was a fun thing. It was really like an exchange, like you sat down and had dinner together and talked. They would say, oh, I need it this big, or I need it that color, I need it that thing, and then we'd talk about it and I'd build something. And So it's a, a real exchange, which was a lot of fun. So with your commission work, did they give you the freedom to put your spin on it? Yeah, I would tell them, they would tell me what they wanted, then I would make drawings for them. Oh, okay. And, and, that, and then they would say, well, blankety-blank, don't say anything. Or i just try to pick up on what they were saying and what they were feeling and what their needs were. At the same time, you'd be making things... Of, that you're, of your own need, have designed and built two houses of which they were environments to keep the world out. You know, you could relate to everything. Somewhat historically, if you'd walked into people's homes and you look at the books they read, the furniture, the paintings, and everything, it would tell the story of their life. You know, my grandmother made the quilt, and I like these poets, and I, you know, like history books, or I 
blankety blank versus just walking in and seeing a room full of Ikea, you know, that you have no idea who the person is. Uh, and it's just like the other person down the block. Yeah, you, know, you, you created this this individual space that was only yours. It was the only one like. Yeah, so the houses, I designed the house and I put the floors and built all the doors and the windows and I made the kitchen and the bathroom and I made all the furniture and I made the paintings on the wall, you know, and it was, it, it was fun, you know. So have you, since moving to Asheville, Tommy, have you turned your apartment into a a, a third house, another idiosyncratic Tommy Simpson. Not entirely, no. I've got things that I've made there. The rugs in there I've made, you know, and the, some of the furniture and um, the paintings and things on the wall. But it, because of my eyesight, because I got a stroke in my optic nerve in my right eye so that I had to stop working on the big tools. I can do handwork and things of that nature. And... Uh, the world's changed and all kinds of things, so I had to give up my houses, and a lot of all of my things are in storage. So I'm more mm -hmm. sort of camping out than I am, and the nature of, which is a long story of um, the arts, because a lot of it used to be more emphasis on the individual and what they did and what their spirit was, if it was George O'Keefe or Picasso or... Uh, whoever, uh, and now it's much more, uh, it's a long discussion, much more oriented on marketing of objects in designing something that will, um, you could go into a, a gallery and you see f five landscapes and, and they, you think, well, this boy's per, per person's productive, and then you realize it's done by five different people. Well, I, I think that's always been the conundrum of the arts, is, right. is, is that we want to be true to ourselves and we want to be true to what we do and who we are but ultimately we have to sell the work if we're going to survive right but i think that brings an interesting point though because your work has always been true to you you know if i could generalize about your work your work has always had a sense of whimsy it's always had a sense of narrative it's your work to me has always sort of felt like there's this joy that's contained in it that's sort of like a a beautiful bedtime story yeah, it's the escape from the, the wonderful world we have out there where people are killing each other and, you know, and cruelty and things. Um, but also I enjoyed, I had real no interest in fame or money. I just wanted to be able to have some pleasure by, you know, as a kid, you know, fishing and building little forts in the woods and that kind of thing. And instead of i've been in the new york sort of market for 40 years and you know you it's you, the part of the game is that you make this thing and that's all you do and then you market that and you do that the rest of your life and said but i rather had have fun doing all sorts of things and um i was lucky i had uh, the experience or the ability to do ceramics jewelry and and textiles and rugs like I've designed 50 rugs and made in Kathmandu, Nepal. And I have, you know, I have three rugs left. You know, because some people buy rugs, some people buy furniture, some buy ceramics, some buy paintings. And I've done four, four books. And some people buy books. And um, so 
so a whole variety of approaches. I've taught uh, in the 60 years, I've taught four years off and on. A lot of times if I moved from like the uh, Midwest to the East Coast, I would get a teaching job for a year to, you know, so you'd have money to eat, you know, while you're setting up kind of thing. Um, but I believe in the, that, you know, the creativity is, we've sort of taught it that it, it's, you know, like oil on canvas, that's art kind of thing. And they don't tell you that a lot of people in the arts um, are ephemeral, you know, they cook a meal and eat it. It, it was really artful, but, you know, you can't come back a year later and see it. But there's there's almost a beauty in ephemeral art, though. It, it yeah. almost in some ways feels like the purest form of art. You think back in the days when, you know, Jack Kerouac used to write on a, on a long roll of newsprint and then tear it up and throw it away. I right. mean, in the sense that he had poured his soul out in this long form and just thrown it away. And obviously he didn't throw it all away, but... I, I find a beauty in, in creating that kind of ephemeral art. Yeah, I just want people to know that is an art. It is creative. You know, if you do gardening or play it, play the drum or you write poetry, that, that all this is art. It, and it should be, and not just sculpture and painting, you know, is art. Well, the whole world doesn't have to see it for it to be art, too. Right. You know, it's not like it's going to be up on a wall or in a gallery for it to be artistic or creative yes and for people to because that's part of the the warmth of self-worth to have know that they are creative and you know and enjoy life that way instead of just working for the buck you know right mm -hmm. well and that, that sort of brings us to the point where in terms of just enjoying things and creating new forms you along with wendell castle really sort of pioneered the and i hate this term art furniture i mean art furniture artiture um well the word studio furniture didn't exist but you i i think fun furniture is a better term you know i i think this is sort of the you know there was the very functional brutality of the scandinavian work but you and wendell and a handful of other people sort of pioneered the whole fun furniture movement so talk a little bit about that, Tommy, and how that came to be. Well, Wendell was a good friend. Uh, I've known him since the early 60s. Uh, he just passed on a few years ago, mm -hmm. which is sad. But uh, it, in the book, Fantasy Furniture, that I did in the 60s, 68, the imagery, the source of kind of idea was, if you look, there's like Native American or totem poles, and there's sort of all kinds of furnishings you know there's thrones that people made our fantasy you know there and all cultures have you know had fun and is was in doing with that and so it's like the sort where you take a scandinavian had rose mauling they painted on the furniture and you know american yeah. indian painted on stuff you know and all kinds of cultures did that versus you know the commercial designed furniture that was you know, it's sold at, at Sears or Bloomingdale's in New York or something. So that was just the source of, you looked at what people were doing, and, and so why not? That was that my thought, because it had more storytelling in it and uh, spirit and joy than just a fabricated design for commercial sales. 
So talk about the very first opening that you and Wendell Castle were involved in that was kind of the, the tipping point for, for the fantasy furniture to, I guess, enter the, the lexicon of New York. Yeah, that was at the Craft Museum. Uh, in, at the, the original Craft Museum was next door to the modern in an old brownstone. Mm-hmm. And they had a show fantasy furniture that had some Italians in it and Wendell and Pedro Friedenberg, who's Mexican. He did the hand. It was a chair you could sit in the hand, somewhat inspired by Paul Smith, who just became a few years before the the director of the museum. Uh, and, and Mrs. Vanderbilt Webb was a real supporter of the museum. She's the one that uh, put up the money, sponsored kind of thing that started back in the late fifties. I think it started. Paul, who who studied art in in Buffalo, I think, uh, he put the, the show together because I, I had talked to Paul earlier. I, I think I met him in like 63 or something, 64. They had a show called Amusements Is, Fun Things, and he had all different titles. And so um, a knowledgeable art himself, he explored a little bit more, and it was a real open time because after the Second World War, you know, everybody was, a lot of the universities were starting to put crafted programs and art programs in their curriculum. And uh, a lot of the women who had worked in factories, you know, or because all the guys were gone, you know, started going into the schools like Judy McKee or Roseanne Summerson made furniture and paint, you know, that, so it's a really kind of a, uh, an explosion of let's try it kind of type thing um, after that in the late 40s and the early 50s and into the 60s. You know, picking up on the thread of the, the fantasy furniture, because I really wanted, I wanted to talk about your chairs for a little bit because they sort of encapsulate, they do a wonderful job of encapsulating your work because one, there's something about the chair that's just so uniquely human because its function is explicit yet you've done a wonderful job of sort of creating, turning them into these whimsical narrative objects and all of them. And there's a whole series of them from your, the first one you made, uh, Mummy Made Me, which you wrapped in fabric and then, you know, working the soil, the buddy's chair that has all the pictures in the ladder back. I wonder if you could just sort of talk for a little bit about that, the whole chair series. Yeah, I've made a ton of the chairs. Usually they're if you write poetry, if you write a limerick, it has a form, and you fit your your craziness into the form. And so a chair has a form, and so a lot of the uh, narrative and storytelling I put in chairs just for the fun of it, instead of just a utilitarian object you'd sit on, and is it comfortable or not? Because if you're five foot two, you know, or if you're six foot six, you need a different size chair. And so they came up with upholstered ones so you could accommodate, you know, different sizes. But I use the chair form more to tell stories and to have fun with. Um, it's like a uh, a short story form or a, a, a limerick form or that, some kind of thing of that nature. Because he has four, usually four legs and a back and arms. Or and um, so I've used it a lot to tell people's lives, history, or experiences that I've had, and um, 
are something that might be fun that uh, in some strictly that I have for myself and then other ones um, that I've made for other people um, you know sometimes I've had I made a chair for some people out in Indiana and the woman gave me you know her husband's um, uh, life history and his rewards and stuff and so I've made images of the whole thing on the chair and I made a, a set of chairs for a collector friend in um, in Wisconsin and I made six chairs because there's six in the family and on the backs of each chair were symbols of all the things they each person did individually so each chair was unique to the person that sat around a round table that had six legs on it because that family was supported by six people. So I did a lot of that kind of narrative or imagery or symbolism so that um, you could look at the table and, and see that the six family members and, and, and on the top of it, uh, uh, the collector sent me like uh, leaves out of the trees in the yard. And so I inlaid wooden leaves, that shaped leaf, and so it made it very personal to relate to and other objects that they favored, you know, if they liked birds. So I'd inlay some birds on the tabletop, you know, that kind of thing. What were some of your favorite chairs that you made? Because you've made quite a few that all seemed very distinct from one another. A little hard to say, I think. It's sort of like... You've kissed someone many times. Which kiss did you Wait, like the best? Well, you know, what was your you favorite know. kiss? I mean. <laughs> so that chair that's all wrapped up mm -hmm. is at the PIA uh, at, in Boston University. They had programmed them, PIA. I don't know if you know about them. A program in artisanry that they had there. And Alphonse Mattia went on sabbatical, and so Ed Zucker and I took his sabbatical semester up and I had a class that I put together for it was one week and I designed made some drawings and um, it had the students try to make the chair because a lot of the program is that you can make a chair in a semester but I gave them one week and so to intimidate them I made that chair overnight and wrapped it up with a fabric so when they came the next morning, I made a chair to intimidate them. And Tom Lozier was one of the students, and he said he always remembered that, you know, I gave him a week to make a chair instead of a whole semester. So they had to look at it, the whole process totally differently. And I did it just for fun. One was if they made my designs, if you graduated, was that something that you'd like to have in your head? really want to work for somebody else make their work or do you want to work do your own work you know sort of trying to quickly put that idea in and then i have a picture of me that i wrapped myself all up in the same fabric and sits in the chair what a good challenge my goodness that was a heck of a week i think that's an important statement too though because i think as i mean i think the hallmark of a lot of woodworking is is that we get caught up in the preciousness of what we do and we get caught up in the process so the whole notion of 
Well, yes, you can spend a month mortising and tending a chair together and making it a, right. a perfect object, or you can express yourself in an eighth of the time and find an entirely different method of working and expressing yourself. Yeah. So I think that that was a really important lesson for yeah. more than just uh, intimidating the students. Well, it allows you to you know expand, you know, not be so tied in with the techniques. A lot of the techniques are wonderful and needful and useful and stuff, but you know, you may want to go that direction, which is fine, but you may not, and you want to give them, you know, an opening. Say you you can do it this way too if you choose. Create your own direction, if you will. Yeah, or make up things, and yeah, you know, it, it's historically. You can imagine the first guy who came up with a wheel and rolled it in. That people would say, "What the hell are you doing? You know, what is that thing?" You know. <laughs> Lean in more to your own self and just for fun. You know, you don't, it doesn't have to be serious or expensive or, you know, profit making, but allow that to happen. Rolling right along, going with that analogy. <laughs> yes, we're, we're not beyond uh, bad pun making in, uh, in Why Make Land. Oh, oh good, good. Actually, I was going to say so much of, of your design work and your design vocabulary and the way you work is focused on fun. I just, I love that. I, I wish I could emulate it. I am wrapped tighter than the mummy chair. Uh, <laughs> it is hard to let go. And I'm just wondering if you could just talk about the fun and the joy of making. Uh, I just think it's so integral to what you do and your process. And as I said, your whole, your whole, your whole visual vocabulary. Enlighten me on how to lighten up and have fun. So I, I'm not sure I have an answer, an answer for that. I keep thinking that I was imprinted as a child in enjoying going fishing and building things and, um, you know, um, shoveling snow, building snowmen, you know, all this sort of thing. And it's um, it, the other side of the boat is um, sort of melancholy, you know, sort of, looking out into the greater world and seeing, you know, starvation and, you know, greed and all this sort of thing, which I just as soon not partake in and sort of take the luxury of enjoying something, you know, helped stem that away or people suffering from all kinds of emotional traumas and this sort of thing. And so I, and I tend more to sort of the idea of discovery and adventure and, um, I don't know, fun and whimsy. I mean, in, in, in the process of actually doing it, I never thought of it being fun or whimsy. I just thought, oh, this, this, is, this idea I can relate to, or this idea you know, means something, or it's, it's not going to burn my fingers or, you know, or make, make me feel sad or lonely or something that uh, people enjoy, you know. And I enjoy it. so when I come into the house and look at the chair, it makes you know it makes me feel good, yeah. and not not thinking that you know it cost oh it cost fifteen hundred dollars, and it's you know I got it at the Bloomingdale's in New York, and it's expensive. You know so that <laughs> makes me worth makes me valuable. You know I look at you know I'd rather look at things that are fun to look at and enjoy. You know that sort of thing. It almost sounds like making and the joy of making was kind of your therapy from the real world, quote unquote. Right. That's what it, that's what it seems. Uh, if, whether or not that 
you know, when I was like two, three years old and taking the shoestrings out of my thing, if that was, you know, my DNA or my nature, I had, you know, I never, my mother told me this, you know, and um, my parents, I did all kinds of, like I flunked myself out of school, you know, and um, honor society in high school, you know, and then the next, you know, six months later, you flunk out of college, you know, kind of thing. And um, they were always very generous in saying, okay, what's next, you know. Um, and, and so that helpful spirit is when I come in and look at the furniture or a painting, I like to see some joy or delight going through. No, the thing that that came across that comes across to me is is the notion of seeking comfort, and I think that is a real human response in terms of our work. We want our work to comfort us, right? And and whether that be joy or whether that, however you interpret that, uh, I think seeking comfort is uh, is uh, as I said a real human response and a real artist's response yeah. to to dealing with the world and moving on. An, another important piece you did, and it's probably has more relative importance to me than some of your other work, is, is the Garden of the Heart piece you did with my brother um, and Palabolus. Because I obviously, I talked with Jonathan quite a bit while you guys were creating that piece. I actually found footage of the original piece being performed at the American Craft Museum uh, in, oh God, it was... Uh, 2000, I believe you did it. I found some of the original uh, video footage of that. And I, I'm just sort of curious, I mean, how did that collaboration, so this is a piece you did in 2000 in which you created a whole installation in which Palabolus Dance Theater created a piece of unique choreography. Music was composed precisely for that piece. Um, it's, a, it's an incredible piece. How did that come about? Um, so my... Just a little history. My brother was Jonathan Wolken. He was one of the the primaries in the Palabolus Dance Theater that did that piece with you. How did that piece come about? Did you and Jonathan cook that up, or is that something Jonathan came to you with, or how did that come about? I'm I'm trying to remember. I I think it was a garden of the heart was something I wanted to do, and being good friends with Jonathan and Robbie and stuff is that I said, would you like to create a dance in it? You know which they were thankfully willing to do, which was a lot of fun trying to, you know, put the two together. And um, some of it, like going back to the other thing, is looking back is I had no really awareness that I was doing whimsical or, you know, going in that direction. You know, I just, this is what I did. This is what makes sense to me kind of thing. More And looking back at People say it's whimsical, and I can look at it and say it was. But, um, no, I enjoyed um, mixing whatever. You know, it's, it's being creative. It has nothing, because they have, at that time, like the New York Times, if it was a painting, you know, they would write about it. But if it was furniture, they wouldn't, because that's craft. You know, that's second rate, you know, kind of thing. And And historically, you know, if you go to, different tribes they've got sculpture and they're dancing with sculpture and you know what i mean and 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 uh, and having all sorts of ceremonies in buildings in environments and that kind of thing so it um and 
that the the garden there are a lot of in the in the near eastern where the in Persia and stuff where the the water would come out of the the mountains and they dig trenches and bring in and then create a garden of which people you know was uh, a marvel to them because they lived in the sort of desert and things and so the, the, um, build a garden of the heart was seemed like a lot of fun in which it, it was 30 by 40 feet and I think just and I you know we'd see Jonathan and Robbie and stuff and so it's, they knew what I was doing and I said well why don't you you know you know create something or do something and then there's the process of you know getting the finances to make it work and all this you know getting other people involved but um, happily it all turned out and uh, one of the fun things I remember was that uh, I think it was uh, Emily or something that one of the dancers because it was sort of an Adam and Eve thing and so I had had a leotard so I painted you know nipples in the and made it nude and I remember her coming down the steps you know, they were at the at, they were playing music and a guy was playing the drum and I remember the guy just you know turning his head with his eyes wide open thinking oh, what's going on Fortunately, there's very few good pictures of it, but I'm looking at the one picture that got published in American Craft Museum, American Craft Magazine, and I'm looking at the gate, and I'm looking at the little pergola there, and you remember in Jonathan's backyard, he had the little pergola in his backyard that he called the cupcake? Right, yeah. And there's the cupcake right there, so it, it makes me, uh, I don't know, I miss my brother, let's put it that way. And the, and the current director of Palabolus, Matt Kent, you remember Matt? Yeah, I met him there. Matt has the moon, yeah. Yeah, and I gave it I to talk, him, yeah. Yeah, I talked with Matt, and uh, he said, uh, you know, he treasures that moon. Uh, it's, uh, it's a prominent feature in his house. But the Garden of the Heart was a lot of fun. I, I enjoyed that a lot. And I also did another one, uh, Playtime in the Making, which was a thing about that was at the Fuller Museum in uh, outside of Boston. But that was a, a, a sort of a installation that it was in uh, one, two, three, four parts. One was, you know, you got an idea in the, and the sort of had an entrance to this house-like thing. And then you, you went into the house and it had, was a river with a table where people sit around and exchange and get ideas. And, and, and then once the idea you get, then there was a garden, so you plant your ideas in the garden, and once they bloom, after that, there was a boat that was carrying the whole thing, and so the boat took it out into the world. It was sort of explaining the creative process a little bit. Now I'm trying to get a retrospective show about, you know, hands-on, idiosyncratic approach to creativity and finding oneself. It was more about that than it was making artwork for the commercial market and making a living that way uh, which and it's all part of the game and I did that as well as this other but it's trying to say everybody is creative they've just you'll know, learn a, a bigger definition of what it is and it's good for your spirit and your you know self-worth and joy in life and to try to uh, have that out in front and said it's big it costs 15 million dollars and it's you know eight by ten canvas you know that kind of thing right and and that's sort of 
I mean, obviously, this is a this is a, a broad thing to delve into, and you've certainly talked about it a little bit here and there. But what are your what are your general feelings about the state of art and craft today? I mean, I hate the word craft personally. Right. Uh, I'm not sure I like the word art either. I like I, there's a reason we call our our little program here why make because it to me it all fits under the rubric of making. Right. And making involves a lot. But what are your thoughts about the state of making these days? Um, well, in some ways, I'm sort of out of the loop a little bit, you know, but the galleries are, it used to be a lot more emphasis, it seems, on the individual person and what their spirit or idea was about. And the galleries would invite people to see that. And now it's much more product oriented. You know, it's, um, you go into galleries and they, you hardly know who did what, but you just, I like the, this size, could you have one smaller or that kind of thing. They're very, they're much, they're executed excellently. I mean, their skills are there, but the spirit of, you know, if a landscape looks like a landscape, you know, it's um, not a Miro or, or, you know, George O'Keefe kind of thing, as I said before, but, um, yeah, I like to see a lot more emphasis on the individual spirit. <clears throat> but, you know, it's it's in a market economy, you know, and it's, uh, yeah, I think you just have to choose what's best for your own head and body, you know. And it's nice to have a, a, a myriad of choices instead of just, you got to do this, you know, make it that way and, I know people do kinetic sculpture, and they wanted to do other things, and they, the galleries won't let them. You, you, that's what you're known for. That's what you get paid for. You keep doing it. Yeah, it seems like a lot of repetition of pieces, your production, that right. kind of thing. Ha, have you have you ever made two of the same piece, or are most of yours one-offs? Well, I mean, with the exception of like making multiples of something for, say, Garden of the Heart. Um, really no that's wonderful that that i mean that that's a true a, a, a test to to the spirit of your work that is just very organic and nothing's going to be repeatable you know if you relate it to food you know or gardening or loving somebody you stand here and and you know oh change your blouse you know and uh, put your hand here because that's the way we kissed the last time it's like are you kidding me? You know, it's like, it's that sort of, you know, I think the discovery and the fun and all this is important into the piece, you know. And I think it's available to people if they would just so choose it, but they've been talked out of it, you know. I think once it's like a path, you, you go down, you start looking at the birds and the, the fruit and the different kind of rocks. And all this kind of thing, and each, as you walk, it's always a little different. And so, to, to capture that more than just repeat the same thing, I mean, to repeat the same design and stuff in a certain way, there's not anything wrong with it. It's is if you if that's what you wish or like to do, you know. But um, I'd like to put forth the idea that there's other options if you so choose, you know. Right, and and you've picked the you've picked the option that's the best way to express your spirit, which uh, is wonderful. Yeah, 
it's uh, it's like getting up when you're eight years old and you know have breakfast and go out into the world. It's always different every time, you know. Yeah, it is. It's snowing one day and the leaves are falling, or then you know the sun's shining, or the fish are biting, or the frogs are, you know, or you like the way that are you're you know out in the garage doodling or something. I remember right. too also that. My parents, we had a, one of those old radios that, you know, used to be sort of house-shaped. It used to be tall, and and I can remember now looking at, thinking about it, why I did it. I painted the, the case of the radio. You know, I, no knowledge of art or anything. It just seemed like something to do. I, I, where all that came from, I have no idea. But um, uh, I don't regret going that path for 60 years because it's, you know, enjoyable. It was enjoyable, fun. And um, I was lucky that I had uh, three or four people that were real supportive that gave me a lot of work. Getting back to spreading joy, I, I think that having a purpose in spreading joy is a wonderful thing. Um, and it definitely seems like that is a that is a purpose you've picked, whether it be the radio, realizing it it needed some more joy. <laughs> it was looking it was looking awful drab and monotone <laughs> right. or or some of the or the garden of the heart or the wonderful pieces. If you're making something to come to life, you want to have identifying marks on it of some sort. It seems like much more enjoyable than to go other directions just for the money. Well, speaking of things that don't make any money, I, I, before we start to wrap this up, I'd like to talk about your writing because uh, that's probably one of the most le least lucrative mediums <laughs> and certainly one we haven't really discussed. So we did right. discuss the, the book you wrote in 1968, Fantasy Furniture, but you also wrote uh, um, Two Looks to Home, which is uh, an excellent book, an excellent perspective on what right. goes on inside your head but you've also written a lot of these little chapbooks like mittens i just wanted to know what role writing played for you in the overall creative process i don't it's hard to i don't know exactly know um i remember i was in college when i flunked myself out and i had an english teacher and and i had written some written something from him and they said did you ever think about being a writer and i looked at him like you know what are you you know like you're crazy you know but i don't know what um some of it is that there are things like the fantasy furniture there are ideas that aren't out there that i thought maybe sh people should be aware of you know that are and like i did hand and home which i photographed about 20 peoples who made things homes the homes of craftsmen of which because usually you'd go into a gallery and you'd see their work and you have no idea who they are or what they do or how they think. And this was to illustrate how they lived, how they put their houses together. Sam Aloof and Wendell are in that book and uh, the potters and, and weavers and all kinds of different people just to, to say that they're not only make things, but they're actually people like you, you know, and they this is how they live and how they think. Yeah. That kind of thing. And then... Uh, I was going to do a book using well-known people, well-known people and how they lived and how they thought and what, how they put their lives together. And I was working on that, and 
I had a show at the De Cordova Museum, and the, the editors saw the show and then looked at all the comments. So she, she offered me the, to do Two Looks to Home, which well, I was really lucky. And so the other book never happened. And I've done a couple recently, one called Butterball Run, which was stories of growing up, and also uh, Skylights, which is a book of poems. And then I'm up contemplating, I don't know whether to do a memoir kind of thing or not, to get it out of my head. <laughs> so I can... It's wonderful you can express yourself that way, Tommy. I mean, um, it's, it's, it's definitely rare amongst visual artists to be able to write and communicate well in that medium. <laughs> Um, in, in wrapping up, Tommy, I'd, I'd really like to talk about the retrospective you'd like to do. How do you, um, you mentioned it briefly before, but uh, what's, what's this show you'd like to put on, your retrospective? Well, there's sort of three parts. The first is try to get an explanation, as I said, of hands-on, idiosyncratic approach to cr creating and um, finding oneself which is different than you make something for the marketplace and get known and that kind of thing. It's sort of um, the process of living the, this life and what it does for you as, and your spirit and your self-worth kind of thing and sort of express that. And then to illustrate that lifestyle, um, I have a whole mixed bag. You know, I have prints and and books and I have, you know, quilts and furniture and paintings and and jewelry that illustrate how one person did this, not not to be get ingratiating, like it is wonderful, but to say this is how one person did it. And then the last other part of it would be much more, um, I guess, digital and, and to show, you know, like 30 other people and how they thought and went through this thing and how they made sense and how, you know, William Carlos Williams was a pediatrician and Winston Churchill painted, you know, and, and you go through all kinds of, the guy wrote Spoon River Anthology was a lawyer, you know, and it's, it's saying that the spirit of creativity is in all of us and to take advantage and here are people that you know them for one thing, but they were creative and all in their in the aspect of their whole life and to put that as and you illustrate either through people's work I know in some form either on zooms or YouTubes or you know written or something that would illustrate a whole group of people that have experiences and with the ideas that you see the show and it's like you know go for it you could you know it's it's up to you to just say, yes, I'll do it. You know, it's there if you'll just accept the fact that you'll try something. And even if it's, you know, making potholders or, you know, growing a garden or playing an instrument or whatever, it's just to go for it instead of, because most of the retrospectives, you put the show, you know, the work up and you walk through and it isn't important and, you know, and then you walk out, you know, and trying to encourage people to, invest in themselves well i i hope we uh, i hope we get a chance to see it it, it sounds like a great concept and and it it, it sounds like a, a good place to wrap it up tommy i am uh, i am thrilled that you shared your spirit and your joy with us on why make and and thanks a lot for joining us 
Thank you. Thank you. I mean, gosh, you know, you're the ones putting it together. And as we end all our podcasts, why make? Why make? Why make? Thanks for listening to this episode on the amazing Tommy Simpson. And as always, you can go to the Why Make website, www.y-make.com for more information on Tommy. You can go to both the podcast page and to the Tommy page on the website, and you can see the promo trailer we've done for Tommy as well as some of his work. And please help donate to the Tommy Simpson Documentary Project by donating to Patreon. At our Patreon page, it's www.patreon.com forward slash why make podcast. And if you're surfing on our website, you can find the orange Patreon button at the bottom of most of our pages. Again, thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in, however you do it. Hope you all have a happy holidays. See you in 2022.